If you've got your Bibles, perhaps we can turn with me to Genesis. Uh, we started a series on Genesis yesterday, which was, sorry, last week. At the back there are some sheets, there are, you know, there are, some, some, there are some A4 sheets, and if you'd like to take those away with you to go with last week's and this week's sermon, you're more than welcome. I've listed on there the ten toldoths, which I mentioned last week, the ten generations that, that, that form the book of Genesis, also has the three locations and the main themes we briefly discussed last week. So th- there are some sheets at the back with some notes for your help um, and assistance. But today we come to Genesis 1 verse 3, and we're going to go through to Genesis 2 verse 3, or, although we won't read it all at once. Um, and I and this will and this will take part. You know, this this will be this week and next week as well. So this is like a part one of a two-part sermon. However, scientists determine these things. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on the planet, which is amazing. That is how vast are the reaches beyond our solar system. Just think about that for a moment. If you've ever held sand in your hand and let it, you know, and, and let it trickle through your fingers, scientists have determined that there are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on the planet. That is how vast is the expanse of God's creation. These things don't happen by chance. Think about it like this. If you found a watch washed up on the beach, you would conclude what? That there was a watchmaker. You, you weren't there to see it be formed, but it didn't happen by accident. Mother Nature did not make the sunset. There is no Mother Nature. No human engineered it. God created it. And he delights in the goodness of all that he has made. And though we bear the effects of the curse, Romans 1 tells us that we see the power of God, the invisible attributes of God, his goodness, his grace and his glory all around us. If only we had eyes to see. So we come to Genesis 1 and we're looking at at this, (coughs) excuse me, Six creation days, and then the seventh day of rest. In the beginning of chapter two. And there are dozens of things that we could talk about from this chapter. We could spend months on Genesis 1. We're just going to spend two weeks. And next week we'll focus on the creation of man in God's image. So if we move past that really quickly today, that's why. But this morning it's a very simple structure. Seven days, seven points. And as through each day, and having worked through the explanation of what is happening in this creation week, we'll finish briefly with the three big themes that God wants us to see from the creation week. So if you have your Bibles, we'll read verses 3 to 5, because that's day 1. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, 
the first day. We see on the first day the sevenfold pattern that recurs in each of the six creation days, just with a slight variation, but the same pattern. Number one, you have an announcement, God said. Number two, a command, let there be. Number three, a fulfillment, it was so. The execution of the command, it was light in this case. Five, the approval of what has been made. God saw that it was good. Six, there is often a a subsequent word, a further fashioning of creation or a naming of creation. And then finally, seven, we have more than an evening and the day is numbered. This is a stylized piece of literature. People will often point out that Genesis is not a science textbook. Of course it's not a science textbook. There were no science textbooks. Um, the language is not, meant to be, is not meant to be technical, detailed, but observational. And therefore selective. But literary refinement, stylized prose isn't the opposite of true. Sometimes people say that Genesis is not a science textbook and then the next inference is that we ought not to take too seriously the historical veracity of what is affirmed. That conclusion does not follow. Rather here we have historical narrative even if it is stylized. We're not in the realm of make-believe. There are no potions, there's no Harry Potter, there's no dragons, there's no wizards. We have God made, it was so, God called, there was evening, there was morning. Which is the common, normal way throughout the Old Testament for narrative to be told. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. Sometimes people say that Genesis 1 is poetry. But it doesn't have any of the hallmarks of Hebrew poetry. It is not myth. Now we have here in the patterned prose of Genesis 1 a, a historical account given by the Holy Spirit of God to Moses of creation. That's what we have. We find often in the Old and New Testament a writer harkens back to the creation account. Jesus himself assumes the, the, the history of Adam and Eve. And even quotes from Genesis 2, saying, did not the Creator say, in Matthew 19. So throughout the Bible there is the assumption that this is an accurate recording of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And as Christians we should, we, 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 we should be rock solid clear on that. Ten times in Genesis 1 it says, God said, and it's on that piece of paper at the back, Genesis 1 verse 3... Genesis 1, verse 6, verse 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, 28, and 29. Creation comes by the voice of God. God said. Creation is a Trinitarian act. In verse 2, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And now we have the expression of the second person of the Trinity. You have the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by means of God's Word, his logos, his speech. So here it is. God speaks, 
creation comes into existence. And if you are a Christian here today, or if you're watching at home, you have had a miracle wrought in your life every bit as powerful as this miracle of creation. That's what a miracle is, that we are a new creation. Every bit a miracle as this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 likens the miracle of new birth, of regeneration. Martin was talking about that before the service. And a witness, you have to be born again. The miracle of new birth, regeneration. It's the same miracle as God said, let there be light. And there was light. If you are a Christian, that is what God did in your life. Maybe he did it when you were a child and you do not remember it. Or maybe you can pinpoint the exact sermon in moments and time, day and year. Day and time and year. But at some point, God spoke. And where there was no faith, he gave you faith. Where there was darkness, he gave you light. And where there was death, he gave you life. God said into your heart, let there be light. And there was light. It happens in creation and it happens in the new birth. God said. In verse 4, God separates the light from the darkness. That's a key theme. Five times we read of separation as God's creative activity. He's separating day from night. In fact, you could argue as Genesis unfolds, you begin with a proper divine distinction or separation. And then with sin, you have the failure and the curse wreaking its effect in the wrong kind of distinction and separation. What do I mean? In creation, you have separation, day from night, waters above waters, light for the day, light for the night. You have the fundamental distinction of man as male and female. God ordered the world with these divine pairs, divine separation, divine distinction. But then when sin comes into the world, you have man separated from God. You have Cain separated from Abel. You have Adam and Eve separated from Eden. You have male and female separated from one another as Eve sins and Adam blames his wife. But in creation, God is doing the good work, the ordered design, and he begins by separating light from darkness. And he called the light day. God names people and things. So it's significant in chapter 2. He gives the man the ability to name things because man is going to be a sub-creator. He's going to be a royal ruler underneath the sovereign ruler. And God declares that it is good, as he will throughout the creation days. Good meaning that the object's quality and fitness resonates with its purpose. This is the way it is meant to be. Look at verse 5. We should say something about the word day. No small amount of controversy, and I'm not going to get into this very long or get into the science. But what is meant by the day? Is it a 24-hour day? Well, the Hebrew word is yom, which normally means a regular 24-hour day. And I think there are good reasons to take from here that this is a 24-hour day. Just four very quick reasons. Number one, the mention of morning and evening. 
Certainly we're put into the realm of cycles of darkness and light. This suggests we're talking about a day, a day that has darkness, a day that has light, morning and evening. Second reason, whenever you have in the Old Testament numbered days, they always refer to a day. So when you can say, well, this is the first day, this is the second day, these are not metaphorical days. A day is a thousand years. It doesn't mean that, but rather they refer to a normal day. The third reason the seven days of the week are the pattern for our seven days. We don't have seven ages. We have literal seven days of the week. And there is a pattern ingrained in the Bible of having one day in seven for rest and worship. So these literal 24-hour days that inhabit our week are a pattern of these regular 24-hour days. And a final reason. From the fourth day on, we read there for signs and seasons and for days and years. That's, that's not the language of metaphor or epochs, but the language for normal season cycle days. So I believe a day is a normal day. Let's look at verse day two. So we're reading now from verses 6 to 8. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. There's no appreciation formula in the second day that God declared it to be good, not because it was not good, but probably because the waters were not fully separated until the next day. So there is perhaps a two-day execution here. He will declare it very good on day three. The word in verse six, expanse, some people took this to be a technical word for a canopy or a dome that covered the earth. I take it much more ordinary and ob observational the idea that a firm, fir, firmament is a ceiling or a dome seems overly complicated and mechanical to me. I think verse 20 gives us an indication of how we are to understand the expanse. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So where do we hear I, by, the, by the way, one of, one of the things I love about walking out around about the lakes is hearing the birds. But where do you hear them? Where do you see them? Not in some glass dome, but rather the sky. So I, I think observationally that the expanse that God calls heaven, it, you know, which could also be translated as sky, is a way of saying that there were waters that have been separated. So there are waters on earth, lakes, rivers and oceans, and waters in the heavens, the rain that comes from the clouds. Let's look at verse day three in verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielded seed according to their own kinds, 
and trees bearing fruit in which is their own seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the third day. So God has given to created living things. And here we're dealing with plants, the ability to reproduce according to their own kind. The created things are not a deity to be worshipped, but the created things that are living things. Here plants, later animals and fish and birds, and then the crown of creation, mankind, are given creative power by the creator. So there is power that God has given within us to reproduce, to multiply, according to its kind. Day 4, verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, that it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. What were the days like before the creation of the sun and the moon? Well, we could simply say that the universe prior to day four was illuminated by the supernatural presence of God. Like you see in Revelation, the God and the Lamb will be its light. God is speaking creation into existence to find, so he can find a way to keep things light or dark before the sun and moon were created. Another explanation is to suggest they already were created but had not yet been separated and put into place. Because it said in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. That's a figure of speech to say that God had created the totality of the universe, which then needs to be shaped and fashioned and separated and filled with living things. But he had created the heavens and the earth. It stands to reason that there would already be a sun and a moon. Verses 3, 4 and 5, we see light separated from darkness. We already have morning and evening. The point being that the work is going on here is the work of separating the light from the darkness. In other words, the sun and the moon created already, as the heavens and the earth were created, light already in existence, darkness already in existence, but now hung into place as it were. Even if that is not the case, and we go simply with that it's illuminated by the special supernatural presence of God, there is nothing to say that these days cannot be ordinary days lit in extraordinary measure. And then day five, verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly across above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their, swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. This is the first mention in Genesis of one of the most significant themes, which is blessing, in verse 22. 
And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. And it's an important point because blessing throughout Genesis is associated with the gift of offspring. God blesses the animals that they may reproduce. He blesses mankind. He blesses Adam and Noah. He blesses the patriarchs on numerous occasions that they might have children, usually against extraordinary odds. We talk about, in our world, we talk about achievement. We talk about accomplishment. We talk about privilege. We talk about success. We talk about legacy. The Bible talks about blessing. And it's, it's not that we are not to use those other words, but it reorients us. How do you experience good things in your life? What you accomplish, what you achieve, your success. Do you attribute it to your hard work or do you experience it as God's blessing? The story of God's blessing in your life. The sixth day, verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. We have four speeches in day six. Every other day is one or two. We have four times God said. We'll talk next week about the plural in verse 26. Let us make man. Just notice that different from the other acts of creation, this is not an impersonal let there be, but let us make. And instead of making things with the ability to reproduce according to their kind, now man is made according to God's image. God is, we see here that man is a creature, but he is not like the other creatures. Humanity is not part of the animal world. Created on the same day, but not of the same kind. God speaks about the other acts of creation, but he speaks to man. He'll be a royal ruler, and he'll be designated not by species, but by sexuality. The distinction will not be according to its kind, but unified man is male and female. In verses 29 and 30, God is the one to provide food for them. In, this is significant, but in the pagan mythologies, man is created to provide food for the gods. 
But in the biblical account, I think it was a beautiful touch that God is the one who spreads the table and provides a feast that he might supply richly for men and women on the sixth day. And the seventh day, Genesis 2 verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. We sometimes think of day six as the pinnacle of creation and in a way it is the culmination. God's creative activity with male and female. But clearly we're meant to read the creation week together and we see a perfect bookend. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. It's glorious, brothers and sisters. It's glorious what God has done. What God begun in Genesis 1, verse 1, has its glorious conclusion in chapter 2, verse 1, which tells us that the focal point is on the creation of man. That's where most of the verses are. But the conclusion, it is repeated three times that God did not work on the seventh day. This is not rest like recuperation because God was exhausted. No, the work is finished. And God steps back, looks at his handiwork and he says, it is very good. Brothers and sisters, God nailed it. God nailed it. You know, um, I'm very much not going to look at my wife when I talk about DIY, and Andrew knows why as well. But whether it's gardening or DIY, or architecture, or fitting a Land Rover, or baking scones, notice how I say that, you do things and step back and you say, there it is. The striking thing about the Sabbath is that the week of creation ends not by consecrated space, or consecrating a location, that would have been common. You set apart a place where the God lives, a temple or an altar. No, the very first thing to be consecrated in the Holy Scriptures, to be set apart as holy, as God is holy, is not a place or a person, but a time. The day shall be consecrated, and it shall be set apart and made holy, belonging to God. The number seven represents completion, perfection, fullness. Pastors have told you that for years. Maybe you've been to a Bible study that tells you that. That seven represents perfection. And it is because seven comes from the creation week. Which represents completion, perfection, fullness. Seven becomes the hallowed number. So the greatness of God, I want you to see that. John Currid said in his commentary that the opening chapters of Genesis reject atheism, pantheism, polytheism, humanism and evolution. It rejects it. And we could add to the list materialism and dualism. We've seen in Genesis a rejection of atheism. Why? Because there is a God. We see a rejection of polytheism because there's only one God. 
We see a rejection of pantheism because the creation isn't God. We see a rejection of humanism because, believe it or not, man is not God. And we see a rejection of macroevolution because the world and its creatures came into being by intelligent design. The book of Genesis was not written in 1870 as a rejection of Charles Darwin. It allows for adaption, but on the macro-Darwinian scale, it is disallowed. We sometimes think that the Bible was written in the early 20th century, I think. It wasn't. Genesis 1 rejects materialism. That is that the physical world, what we can see, is all that there is. And Genesis 1 rejects dualism that says spiritual stuff is good and physical stuff is bad. Genesis 1 is opposed to pagan mythology. Pagan mythology that worshipped creatures or sun gods or the moon or astrology. Or worship the gods of life, of fertility and death. No, Genesis 1 is that we, there is one God. And we worship him. Genesis, it's all about the God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the beginning, there was God. He has no competitor. He has no rival. He is the lawgiver. So brothers and sisters, what do we see? We see the greatness of God. And that should cause us to sink to our knees and worship. Really, it really should. This is the, the account of the creation. And then secondly, as a point I would like you to consider, we see the goodness of creation. We, we live on the other side of the curse. And we know that everything is not as it should be. But we can see good, 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 very good. We believe as Christians in the incarnation that God took on human flesh and he was still God. The act of taking on flesh, of being joined a human nature and a divine nature did not render the divine nature less divine. We say to err is human, don't we? I don't anymore because to err, to make a mistake, to sin is not human. It is fallen humanity. Christ showed us what humanity was meant to be. What enfleshment was meant to be. We believe in the resurrection. And there is something rich and body affirming. And I was reminded this week that creation is the reason why Christians over the ages have practiced burial. To say that the body is a gift from God. And it is a body that is laid into the earth. And the body will be resurrected. Creation. Physical matter. Is good. So we see. Whether, we, whether it's the fells. Which are looking absolutely glorious today. Or whether it's the lakes. Or the streams. The sea. The meadows. The herdwick. The trees. The garden, children and food. Brothers and sisters, we're meant to enjoy and delight in the goodness of what God has done. Of course we can enjoy it in the wrong ways and we can enjoy it in the wrong proportions. 
But do you have eyes today? Do you have eyes? Just pause. Do you have eyes to see what is good? It's very good. It's very beautiful. And God made it. G.K. Chesterton has a famous paragraph where he says, Maybe we are the ones who have grown old, and it is children who have the wonder to delight in monotony. Maybe we are the ones who have grown old and we've got bored. It just struck me this, this, every night with the moon and every morning with the sun, what did God say? Let's do it again. Do it again. Brothers and sisters, God never gets tired with a new day. Some of us, our eyes grow dim to the wonder, to the enchantment, to the beauty. This evening when the sun sets, and tomorrow when the sun rises, would you not say, isn't, this is, God has done it again? God has done it again? We're the ones who get bored and boring, but God does it again. And thirdly, and lastly, you'll be glad to hear the grace of rest. Have you ever noticed that mankind's first full day on earth is spent in rest? The first day, the first day, is not to work, but to enjoy all that God has made and worked on his behalf. Have you ever thought why we have seven days a week? We have a 24-hour day before, because of the earth's rotation. We have months that roughly correspond to the phrases of the moon. We have years based on how long it takes the earth to travel around the sun. These are natural but there's no natural reason why we should have weeks. Why not just have months or years or endless days? But we have weeks because God shaped the earth six days and on the seventh he rested. You notice the seventh day does not have the refrain morning and, e and e evening and morning because in a way it has no end. The Sabbath rest of God continues. I'm not going to finish with a little two-minute sermon about resting and worship on the Sabbath I could do, but that's not what Hebrews 4 does. When Hebrews 4 goes back and quotes from Genesis that God rested on the seventh day, look at the connection that Hebrews makes. Therefore you ought to rest from your labours and find your identity in Christ. That is the Sabbath rest that we are meant to enjoy. Remember I said that God nailed it, that God stepped back. Not because he is exhausted, but to step back and say, it is good. Hebrews tells us that there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Do you ever, can you consider God stepping back and looking at you, you, his beloved child, and saying, it is good. I like what I see there. Some of you, Perhaps, may even be made, may, may, maybe me, never relate to God that way. <coughs> but there remains a Sabbath rest. Because at first when I was finishing the sermon, I thought, okay, rest and Sabbath and take a break because it is finished. But then I look at my life. Maybe you look at your, the same. And it never feels like it is finished. My house is never clean, I never have my to-do list done, it never feels done. But that is not what Hebrews says. 
Hebrews does not say sit back because you will be able to say the to-do list is done. But you will be able to say everything that ought to be done to make God love me. Nailed it. (coughs) Nailed it to the cross. Because you did not do it. I did not do it. God rested on the seventh day and said, it is enough. It is done. I like what I see. So we are meant to rest in what God has done for us as he looks upon your life in Christ and says, that is very good. Is your identity in Christ? He nailed it. He nailed it to the cross. May the Lord bless the word. Amen.